Welcome to In-House Legal, where we cover a variety of issues pertinent to the general counsel and in-house legal departments of small, mid-size, and large organizations. Join host Randy Milch each month as he discusses the latest developments, trends, and best practices for this very busy and often complicated area of law. You're listening to Legal Talk Network. Hello, my name is Lawrence Coletti, and I'm the producer for Legal Talk Network. As many of you know, our network went through a change in ownership some time ago, and as a result, some of our shows were not immediately renewed. So it's with great excitement that we welcome back to our lineup, In-House Legal, which is a show that covers a variety of issues of special interest to in-house counsel. In addition, I would also like to welcome our new host, Randy Milch, who is the former Executive Vice President and General Counsel for Verizon Communications. Today is the Executive Vice President and Strategic Policy Advisor to the Chair and CEO of the same. Welcome to your show, Randy. Thank you, Lawrence. It's a pleasure to be here, and it's, I'm looking forward to the uh, entire set of shows. Oh, great. Well, as you're taking the metaphorical helm of this program, we thought it'd be a good idea for our listeners to get to know you, as well as talk about possible future topics. So if you don't mind... Tell us a little bit about yourself, where you're from, family, hobbies, those kinds of things. I'd be happy to. Uh, I'm an Air Force brat uh, who grew up mostly in Indiana. I remain entranced by my wife of nearly 30 years, Amy Salzman, and we have two lovely and vibrant daughters. I went to NYU Law School and had a great opportunity to clerk for Clement Hainsworth on the Fourth Circuit. I litigated for seven years and uh, then to, went to work, quit my partnership, and went to work as a line lawyer at the C&P Telephone Company of Maryland. And that was back in 1993. That kind of ties into the beginning of your Verizon experiences, correct? That is. That is the beginning of my Verizon experiences right there in 1993. And as you know, I was purely, by, as a matter of luck, rode the telecom wave that began in the, in the mid-'90s, and uh, an ever-expanding uh, world of telecom opened up, a lot of investment, a lot of legal problems, and a lot of things for me to do. So I think I've had eight jobs now at Verizon and its various predecessors over 21 years. Oh, wow. Wow. So there's uh, a lot of history there. Absolutely. Probably more than anyone cares to remember. <laughs> well, I mean, see, because you've seen so much, and you know, as telecoms developed, uh, just exponentially developed uh, the last 15 years, you know, if someone, and this is just for the sake of our listeners here, what, what kind of advice would you give to an aspiring attorney who wishes to become the general counsel for a company like yours? Well, first of all, I'd start off by saying, uh, wishing them the best of luck. I think that it's important to take it in steps. So first off, uh, you know, law school is a tough thing to get through these days. It's a hard to justify the expense of law school unless you have a pretty good idea about why you want to go be a lawyer. So the first thing I'd do is make sure you wanted to be in the field in the first place. After that, get the best training you can out of law school. I'm not sure it really makes much difference, Lawrence, whether you whether or what you specialize in outside uh, in your first legal practice. It's much more important to develop the skills and judgment uh, of a lawyer, and that can be accomplished in very many ways. So it's important to go someplace where you'll get good hands-on experience, as most 
in-house legal departments, not all, but most, only take experienced attorneys. So you have to get experienced in some way, shape, or form. So that would be the first step, I think, would be uh, getting that great basic level of experience that you can then parlay into uh, an in-house legal job. Oh, fantastic. So, I mean, it sounds like that it's just not one size fits all. It sounds like there's a variety of paths and uh, there's probably not one that is typical uh, as as you move forward into those ranks. I think that's right. Historically, I believe it was common for M&A lawyers to become general counsel. And I think that's probably because in many instances, they had access to senior decision makers uh, in corporate in corporate America, as they did deals, I think that that has changed somewhat or begun to change somewhat over the course of years as regulation has become increasingly an issue. Uh, the wide issues of public policy come to the fore. Uh, global requirements, which could enlist different experiences, mean that folks from a variety of specialties in private practice or training in private practice are equally able to become uh, high-performing high in-house counsel and candidates for general counselships. Well, here's a question I have for you. And I just, when I look back at the history uh, that, that you've had with Verizon and, and I look at the particular time period that you were uh, having these experiences at Verizon, you know, just seeing so many things as, that, uh, as the telecom industry has really expanded and all the developments I just want to ask you, what was the most challenging legal matter that you had to work on? Well, I think that I was very lucky to be general counsel of of a Fortune 15 company, Fortune 16 company. That meant that basically every large issue that affected anyone anywhere in the world ended up affecting us somehow. Uh, And we faced very, very large regulatory issues, very large M&A issues like the Vodafone transaction for $130 billion. We've had massive, as I said, regulatory change over the last uh, eight or nine years, and I think that has uh, brought with it some very significant legal issues. So it's sort of hard to pick out one. Uh, there's There's a bit of a greatest hits, I think, that keep on coming back as opposed to simply one event. And I just, uh, you know, with all the different ways that, you know, companies like Verizon Communications are involved in the daily lives of people, you know, I would imagine that it opens itself up just by the nature of its business to a lot of different types of lawsuits. So, and this may be an impossible question to answer, but how many times per year does an organization like Verizon get sued? Well, I can only say too many. Uh, (laughs) we, We get sued quite a bit, as you would imagine. Any company that has a as broader reach as we do, uh, ends up with uh, a plethora of lawsuits. And that's one of, the, one of the attributes of America, I think, that we love and we hate, is that anyone can sue anybody for anything here. And uh, that's very frequently the case. We've had some very large litigations, uh, you know, multiple billion dollar litigations, which we've had a very good track record on. And our approach uh, has always been, as a company, uh, that we need to make money the right way. You know, we, we just don't want to make money. We want to make money the right way. And that means that we go out of our way if we make a mistake, which we do, and it's sort of inevitable if you have uh, 100 million-plus customers. Uh, if we make a mistake, we do the wrong thing. We try to make it up to people on our own. We don't wait for a lawsuit uh, because 
if we've misbilled somebody, it's not our money, and we want to give it back. So I think that uh, our approach has uh, been good on that front. Uh, we've had, by the way, a huge, huge increase in uh, patent troll litigation. So if I had to point to any surging aspect of our docket, it would be the 60-plus the patent litigations that we have, uh, all but one of which is, is by a non-practicing entity or a, a patent troll. So that has been a very significant increase, and uh, all of which has occurred in the last five or six years, uh, that significant change in our litigation profile. And those are expensive cases to litigate, uh, because patent cases are very expensive, uh, and has engendered uh, a lot of attention by me and others uh, to try to fix some of the aspects of the patent litigation system to reduce the innovation tax that patent trolls are exacting uh, across, the, across many parts of the economy today. Well, you know, and with all of those kind of issues, with, with patent issues and with regulatory uh, issues, and, you know, of the shared issues that Verizon has with a lot of different types of companies, I would imagine with all of those different areas of law that you're concerned in that you must have a pretty formidable legal team that uh, works for you either directly or uh, is, you know, contracted uh, to, to the outside of the organization with. And so I just kind of want to get an idea for that. Um, on a daily basis, when you were uh, general counsel, how many attorneys would report to you on a daily basis? Well, the general counsel position at Verizon had with it about a dozen direct reports, but that included um, public policy, which, which I headed, uh, compliance, which I headed, and security, which was also within my domain. So I had the, you know, the, the privacy efforts and the compliance efforts and the national security efforts all rolled up uh, to me. So with that understanding, I had about a dozen dozen reports. Verizon has about 350-plus, give or take, attorneys uh, on the payroll. Uh, they are tremendous attorneys, and they and the, their direct leadership, the ones who reported to me and now report to the general counsel, are, are tremendously experienced attorneys with great judgment, great depths of expertise in their various areas, uh, and accomplished leaders, because one of the aspects of having such a large legal department, of course, is management issues. And lawyers aren't known for being managers. I don't think it's one of our natural strong suits. Uh, but the folks who run the parts of the Verizon legal department and the public policy area, the national security area, um, they're all accomplished leaders, as well as being very, very deep experts in their fields. Oh, well, that sounds like you have a special lot that, that uh, work for Verizon Communications. We have a very, very deep bench. Uh, I'll put them up against any group inside or outside. We have done deals where, uh, where on the other side of a table were a dozen partners and associates from a major Wall Street firm, and on our side of the table uh, there were a dozen of my in-house people and one associate from a law firm. So. Uh, we we give as good as we get, and uh, we know our stuff. So I think it's a great, great legal department. Well, I think that's a great place for us to take a break. So before we move on to our next segment, we're going to hear a quick message from our sponsor.
This is normally the time in our show when we hear a word from our sponsors, and this could potentially represent an opportunity for you. In-house legal is seeking sponsorships. If you are interested in participating in our programming or would like more information about rates, please contact the team at Legal Talk Network at info at legaltalknetwork.com or go to their website at www.legaltalknetwork.com and click on Advertise. Welcome back to In-House Legal. I'm Lawrence Coletti, and with me today is the new host of In-House Legal, Mr. Randy Milch. Now, Randy, before uh, we left off for the break, we discussed all the different attorneys that would uh, report to you, the different levels of expertise, and a little bit about the management of those attorneys as they worked on the various legal issues that affected Verizon Communication. But I'd like to add that a little bit by asking about expertise and specialties. And and this is one of the questions that's always made me very curious about uh, people that have served in positions such as yourself as general counsel. You know, given that we can't specialize in everything as attorneys, you know, you're one person. How do you ensure that all the matters are being handled correctly? It's a great question. And as I said before the break, the folks who I rely on who are my deputies are both accomplished leaders and accomplished in their areas. And they have beneath them deep, deep subject matter experts in all the areas that you might think of as, you know, ninja legal areas, tax, real estate, uh, antitrust, mergers and acquisitions, compliance. We have folks, uh, and let me add privacy, obviously. We have folks who are very, very steeped in those internally. And in the end, uh, you have to rely uh, on the judgment and ability of the folks who report to you because it is impossible to, as the general counsel, ensure that every matter is being uh, handled correctly, even if I had the expertise to do so. Uh, I tend to have the luxury, I had the luxury, I should say, of, of being able to rely on the judgment and ability of the folks who reported to me. And that meant that I was freed up to ask questions, which is the proper role, uh, be inquisitorial. Why are we thinking about doing one thing and not the other? Explain to me the benefits and the burdens of the approach. Uh, and then be able to make strategic decisions about how we would approach litigation, M&A, uh, tax issues, whatever you wanted to bring up. There are always approach and strategy issues that can be discussed and debated. Uh, and what I got paid for as general counsel and what the general counsel now gets paid for is to provide that overall judgment, ensure that our approach is consistent with our overall strategy, preserve our reputation, uh, and generally take the approach that we you know, pride ourselves on at Verizon of, of being a, a good and proper player in the world, in the world community. So it really does depend on uh, the cascade of, of excellent attorneys uh, in the various subject matter areas. Well, you know, it sounds like there's a lot of moving parts of that, you know, that you have to respond to and, uh, you know, probably oftentimes very quickly. Did you find that role uh, extremely stressful while you were doing it? Well, you know, the, the former general counsel of Pepsi, uh, Larry Thompson, always used to say that he when people asked him how he felt about things, that he slept like a baby, meaning he woke up in the middle of the night crying. 
I think that that was uh, it's well put, but in the end, it's not a matter of stress. I don't think because if you're not built for uh, uncertainty and you know a little bit of pressure, you shouldn't take the job. But I think it's more a relentlessness. Uh, there's always something, especially if you have a hundred and you know, 90,000 employees providing services in 160 countries around the world. Something's going on somewhere all the time. Uh, and it's always, it could be something that was, could have negative repercussions for the company, for its reputation, for its employees, for its customers. Uh, you can list the, the, the stakeholders, and there's always something going on somewhere. So it's more an aspect of relentlessness, I think, than, than pure stress. Now, the flip side of the relentlessness and the variety is that, you know, it's a smorgasbord of, of issues and opportunities to make a difference, uh, opportunities to reach a right decision and further the interests of the company, the shareholders, the customers, our employees. And what can we do to make things better? Because in every one of, bit of that adversity, there does lie an opportunity to make things better. So, so my guess is you worked a lot of hours per week. I think that uh, that's true. Yes, I certainly did. Well, would you mind walking us through just a typical day? You know, from obviously we'll have to summarize this a little bit, but I'd like to hear how your day began and and just some of the the, the typical issues and the amount of meetings and interactions. That just it it boggles my mind at at how much you would have to be responsible for. So I just I'd like to learn a little bit more about that. I'm not sure there's a typical day. I think if I were to sort of amalgamate uh, the different types of things that I uh, participated in every day. Uh, you know, um, one day a week we would uh, devote a morning to the senior manager meeting. So the Verizon Leadership uh, Committee is uh, is the top management committee of the company, and we would spend one morning a week meeting to uh, ensure that everyone was on the same page as we move forward operationally, legally, policy-wise, etc., before that, uh, I guess I should start a little bit earlier. Uh, maybe it's just the benefit of old age, but I seem to need less sleep. So I would be up pretty early, uh, usually greeted by a very full email inbox. Uh, try to work my way through that uh, inbox before I got into the office uh, by about 7.30. And try so I could start out the day with you know a relatively clear deck, at least as far as my inbox was concerned. I generally would have three or four face-to-face meetings, internal and or external. My role as head of public policy meant that I was in Washington or some other uh, capital, usually some at least one day a week. Uh, and so I would be on the road to that. And I'd probably be traveling somewhere else at least one day a week. So I'm out of the office uh, a couple of days a week. But when I'm in the office, pretty consistent rhythm of phone calls and meetings throughout the day, both internal and external, uh, depending on the time of year, of course, because these things ebb and flow seasonally. They ebb and flow how close we are to earnings reports. They ebb and flow near the annual meeting. So there's more of a yearly rhythm, I think, than than, uh, anything else. And that, of course, affects what's on your plate. And all that aside, if there's something really big going on, a major lawsuit that's going to trial, where I feel like I have to be there uh, as much for moral support to the team as, as, as anything else or an M&A transaction that needs closing down or whatever strategic issue that the CEO 
wanted me to be involved with, that would take precedence. And uh, you would find yourself somewhere around the world for quite a period of time, a few days, a week. And in those instances, you really do have to rely on the people who run everything day to day behind you uh, with all their expertise and judgment to keep things moving so that you can devote yourself to whatever particular issue needs your attention. Well, I think that's a great segue into my next question. You know, we talked a little bit about the deep bench that you had as far as uh, council attorneys and, uh, you know, people that would, would uh, venture off the different specialties of law. But, uh, you know, there's a, another side of it, um, you know, your support staff and the assistants. Uh, how important are those, are those types of positions and people uh, in, in allowing you and, and enabling you to do your job? Well, they're obviously absolutely critical, Lawrence. Um, you know, I would have found the job impossible if I hadn't been uh, blessed, as I still am, by Barb Wilkinson, my, my executive assistant. She's, she's tremendous, and I think that any executive with a constant diet of uh, items to take care of would agree that the person who uh, answers the phone, deals with the meetings, stitches everything together, uh, soothes people's hurt feelings whenever they're hurt, deals with a huge staff. It's a real multi-ball uh, juggling act that uh, these folks do. Uh, coupled with the fact that at least the executive assistants at Verizon tend to answer a lot of customer calls and deal with customers, get them to the right people, uh, try to fix their problems as well. So it's a real internal and external tour de force. Um, and folks like Barb, my EA, always have a great reputation out with all the people they deal with. Um, they are polite, knowledgeable, uh, efficient, and really working to get the job done. So I can't overemphasize how important it is to have a great executive assistant, a great support staff, and not be in the situation which I find an, a surprising number of people are in where they grumble about their support staff, uh, don't feel like they're being well-served, but find themselves paralyzed to do anything about it. I think that they sell themselves short and they, they really eat into their own productivity if they don't take care of that problem. I think I would agree with that, Randy. I think uh, having uh, good people around you to uh, uh, facilitate your calendar, facilitate relationships and keep things moving, I think it's a you know, an, uh, oftentimes unseen but very, very important uh, to, to getting these big jobs done. I think it really does uh, become a team effort at that point. So if you'd humor me for just one more question before we get to the last question, I wanted to ask you, because I'm very curious about it, what is the most powerful legal adversary that you've faced as general counsel? Maybe tell me why. Sure. The, I think the most powerful legal adversary I faced as general counsel was the fallout from the financial meltdown uh, in 2008-9. It engendered a view, a populist view, that large corporations were a problem, even corporations that had nothing to do with the financial issues that arose. It engendered uh, over-the-top regulatory reactions in the, in the guise of Dodd-Frank bill, which has a, had a huge number of corporate governance overreaches that had nothing to do with the issues outside of the financial area. And it has been exacerbated by the approach of this administration 
uh, and sort and, and in the administrations of a number of states that have taken the approach that this is an easy way to play to their base. Uh, so they've they've approached regulation and enforcement with a real counting of coup mentality. Let's see how many dollars we can rack up. Let's see how we can go after large corporations. And people need to realize that if you are in a regulated industry, you know, the folks who are acting as prosecutor, judge, and jury also are your primary regulators. So you need licenses, you need all sorts of things from them that are a matter of normal business. These are the same people who are going after you for uh, millions, hundreds of millions, billions of dollars in demands. And I think that that is, a, is, is, is the most challenging issue that I faced uh, as general counsel. This populist issue associated with admitted malfeasance in the financial industry spread widely over the rest of corporate America and then exploited uh, as a political tool uh, by the by the government. Well, it sounds like a lot of very challenging issues uh, stemming out of that. So I can't imagine the amount of work that that must have created for you guys. So Randy, well, I got another question. This is the last question I have for you. As the new host for In-House Legal, what topics are you looking forward to covering? You know, Lawrence, it's a great question. And I've spent a lot of time uh, trying to figure that out because I do want the show to be interesting and, and particularly useful for a group of audiences, I think. I think it's for existing in-house counsel, uh, for folks who want to become in-house counsel, and I think for the wider community of, of people who want to assist in-house counsel, that being outside counsel or vendors of other sorts, trying to provide uh, a little bit of a roadmap about how in-house counsel think about their issues and their problems. So I've already lined up a few folks and a few ideas uh, to, to do that. A good friend, uh, Mark Rolig, who's the general counsel of Mass Mutual, will be joining me for a, a segment on, on his views about how in-house counsel can be strategic partners and how to deal with some of the larger issues. Mark is a, is a serial general counsel and a, a great one, has thought a lot about the role. Um, I'm looking forward to inviting Paul Lipp from Legal OnRamp to uh, come and talk on the vendor side about how he is trying to transform the legal profession and and the provision of services to in-house counsel, and also trying to figure out on the supply chain end, what can we do to change law school, change the the inflow of lawyers uh, into private practice and then into in-house counsel them. Um, I'm looking forward to, to inviting Dean Phil Weiser from the University of Colorado School of Law to come on to talk about some of the ideas he's had. So that's sort of a short-term set of goals, uh, and I hope to build on those uh, over the course of uh, the year and and the various shows. Well, I think that's a great place to leave our uh, listeners uh, for today. So we'd uh, like to invite you, Randy, to officially take the reins of your show. Um, I'm going to ask you where our listeners can find more information about this program. Thank you, Lawrence. For all of you listeners who would like more information about what you've heard today, please visit www.legaltalknetwork.com, or you can follow us on iTunes, RSS, Twitter, and Facebook. And that brings us to the end of our show. I'm Randy Milch. Thank you for listening. Join us next time for another great episode of In-House Legal. 
The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer.